Seventeen-year-old David Smith and his wife Maureen sat at the Hyde Police Station on October seventh, nineteen sixty-five. They had a very distressing story to tell Superintendent Talbot, one that would soon become one of Britain's most notorious criminal cases. The night before, David's sister-in-law came over to his house. When it was time for her to go home. She stated that she was afraid to walk alone in the dark, so David offered to accompany her. When they got to Myra's house, 16 Wardle Brook Avenue, she asked him to come inside because her boyfriend, Ian Brady, had some miniature bottles of wine for him. Once inside, he was left standing in the kitchen alone with the wine, where he read the labels on the bottles. Suddenly, he heard a long, loud scream, followed by Myra calling for him from the living room. Upon entering the room, he saw Ian Brady holding a life-sized rag doll. But when it fell against the couch, two feet away from him, David realized it wasn't a doll; it was a young man. Welcome to another episode of Crimson Sin with Tamsin Lee. I am your host, Tamsin Lee. You can find a link to today's show notes in the description. Stay up to date with the latest from me at Buy Me a Coffee or Patreon. Also, check out the Tamsin Lee shop. You can find links to all of these sites in the description. Don't forget to like and follow to keep up with the latest episodes. This is the fourth episode in the Couples Who Slay Valentine's Day countdown. We have talked about Tyler Witt and her boyfriend. We've talked about the Ken and Barbie killers with Paul Bernardo and Carla Homolka, and we have discussed the case of Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate. So today's case brings us to Manchester, where the infamous Moore's murders occurred in the 1960s. It was the first time in British history that a woman had been involved in a killing partnership that had involved the serial sex murders of children. The public could not understand how any woman could take part in such a horrific crime. As women are known to be loving and nurturing toward children, I mean, back then, you—if a woman was nearby your child, you pretty much trusted them to look after the kid. This case changed that. Myra Hindley's involvement made the crimes committed with Ian Brady even more evil and unforgivable. What drove this couple to such depths of depravity? While Ian Brady's childhood gave clear indicators of his future crimes, the same could not be said about Myra's childhood. Myra was the first child of Nellie and Bob Hindley, born on July second, nineteen forty-two, in Gorton, Manchester. For the first three years of her life, her father served in a parachute regiment, so Myra's mother raised her alone during her first three years of life. They lived with Nellie's mother, 
Ellen Maybury, who helped look after the child while Nellie was at work. When Bob returned home, the family bought a house just around the corner from Nellie's mother. Bob would find a job as a laborer, but he had a hard time readjusting to civilian life and would spend most of his free time in the local bar. Their second child, Maureen, was born in August 1946. But Bob and Nellie found the workload of having jobs and two small children to be just too much for them. So they decided to send Myra to live with her grandmother. This arrangement solved a lot of the family's problems. For Ellen, she was no longer lonely. The pressure on Bob and Nellie was relieved, and Myra enjoyed all of the devoted attention she received from her grandmother. Psychiatrists believe that this innocent incident could have impacted Myra as it meant that she and her father's relationship never fully developed. As Bob was not known to be an emotionally demonstrative man, his absence during Myra's formative years created a void that was never filled. And with her living away from him, it deepened that void. At five years old, Myra attended Peacock Street Primary School and was described as a mature and sensible girl. However, her grandmother would allow her to stay home for the smallest of things, so her attendance was poor. Due to her many absences, she did not receive the necessary grades to attend the local grammar school, so instead she would attend Ryderbrow Secondary Modern, where her attendance was still very poor, continuing into her high school years. But she was able to consistently maintain perfect grades. While in school, she was talented in creative writing and poetry, and she loved sports and athletics. Of course, while in school, she was teased a lot. I mean, who isn't teased or bullied while at school, right? Classmates would often make fun of the shape of her nose, and she was given the nickname Square Arse because of her broad hips. While her classmates made fun of her, Parents and children loved Myra. Her reputation amongst adults as being a mature and sensible girl made her a very popular babysitter when she was a teenager. Parents were just elated if they were able to have Myra as their babysitter because she was responsible and she showed genuine love for children. At 15 years old, Myra became friends with a fragile and timid 13-year-old boy named Michael Higgins. She looked after him a lot and protected the boy as if he were her younger brother. She was very close to him and knew that she had found a lifelong friend in him. One day, he invited her to go swimming at a reservoir, but she declined his offer. Myra was devastated when she learned that day he had drowned. And that grief was made all the worse by her guilt because she believed that if she had gone with him, she could have saved him. She was a strong swimmer, 
So she knew that if she had been there, she could have saved his life. She knew that there would have been something she could have done to prevent his death. Myra was inconsolable over the next few weeks, flip-flopping between depression and hysteria. She cried, dressed in black, went to church nightly to light a candle for her friend. And she would even go collect money from neighbors so she could purchase a wreath. She even went on to convert to Michael's religion, Roman Catholicism. While everyone grieves differently, her actions deeply troubled her family. They believed she was overreacting and told her that she needed to control herself. Not long after Michael's death, her grades suffered immensely, and she left school because she was not considered bright enough to stay or complete her O-levels. Myra began work as a junior clerk at an electrical engineering firm called Lawrence Scott and Electrometers. At this point in her adolescence, she was a lot like the other girls her age. She attended dances, went to cafes, listened to rock and roll, flirted with boys, and she would occasionally have a cigarette. Her appearance also became more important to her. She started to bleach her hair, and she also started to wear dark makeup so she could appear older. On her 17th birthday, Myra would become engaged to Ronnie Sinclair. But the reality of life soon started to creep in as she started to question the lifestyle she would soon be expected to conform to. After marriage, you're expected to buy a house. Then you're expected to have children. Then the years after would be met with trying to make ends meet while your husband spends all of the money at the local pub. She focused on the negative side of marriage, the things she witnessed growing up, and called off her engagement. But Myra began to crave something more exciting in her life. She would go on to fill out applications for the Navy and Army, but she never turned them in. Then she considered working as a nanny in America, but she never followed through with this plan. Eventually, she would search for a job in London, but again, Nothing came of it. She wouldn't find that excitement she was searching for until January 1961, when Myra Hindley would meet Ian Brady. Ian Brady was born in one of the roughest slums at the time in Glasgow on January 2nd, 1938. His single mother, Margaret, she also went by Peggy Stewart, worked as a tea room waitress in a hotel. So back in this time, to be an unwed mother was met with a lot of disapproval and judgment. So she would sign her name as Mrs. Stewart to make it seem as though she was married. She would never say who Ian's father was, only stating that he was a journalist for a Glasgow newspaper who died a few months before Ian was born. Because she had no one to support her and her baby, she found it necessary that she knew it was necessary to continue working. As a single working mother, she could not afford to hire a babysitter and would sometimes leave her baby at home alone. Peggy knew this wasn't right. She did not want to have to leave her baby home alone by himself while she was at work. I mean, he was just 
a newborn. He was an infant. So she advertised for a permanent babysitter to take Ian into their home. So they could provide her baby with the care and attention she was not able to provide him with. A couple with four children of their own named Mary and John Sloan answered the advertisement. To Peggy, they appeared trustworthy and caring, and at four months old, Ian was unofficially adopted by the Sloans. Peggy signed over Ian's welfare payments to the Sloan family and arranged to visit with him every Sunday. Every Sunday, Peggy would bring gifts to her son, but she would never tell him that she was his biological mother. Mary Sloan was referred to as Auntie or Ma, but eventually his biological mother's visits became less and less frequent until one day they stopped altogether when Ian was 12 years old. At this age, Peggy had moved with her new husband, Patrick Brady, to Manchester. Ian always felt that he didn't truly belong due to the murky relationship with his mother and their arrangements with the Sloan family. Even though the Sloans provided the child with a loving environment, Ian didn't respond to the care and attention they provided. He would prove to be a very difficult child who often felt lonely and angry. A recipe that caused him to frequently have extreme temper tantrums that would normally end in him banging his head on the floor. Ian Brady attended Camden Street Primary School and was considered to be a bright child by his teachers. But the same could not be said about his classmates, who considered him secretive and an outsider. He did not play sports like the other boys his age, who would consider him to be a sissy. Even though he was bullied and an all-around difficult child, there is one instance from his childhood that remains profound and imprinted on the memory of Ian as well as the Sloan family. At nine years old, Ian went out to the moors of Loch Lomond with the Sloan family, where they spent the day picnicking. After eating a filling lunch, the Sloans took a nap in the grass. When they woke up, they discovered Ian wasn't there. When they finally found him, he was standing about 500 yards away at the top of a steep slope. He stood there for an hour as the family called and whistled, trying to get his attention. But nothing they did broke Ian from his reverie. Two of the Sloan children climbed the hill to get him, but Ian told them to go on home without him. He just wanted to be alone. Later on the bus ride home, he was extremely talkative for the first time in his life. Something about that time he spent alone on that hillside provided him with a profound experience. Overlooking the vast expanse on that hillside, he was filled with a sense of power and strength. When he was 11, Ian passed his entrance exams to attend a school for students with an above-average intelligence called Shawlands Academy. However, his true potential in the academic world would never be realized because, according to his teachers, he never applied himself. 
and started to misbehave. He would go on to start smoking, give up on his academic career, and start getting in trouble with the law. He also started to become fascinated with the Second World War, and more specifically, with the Nazis. Between the ages of 13 and 16, Ian would be charged on three counts of housebreaking and burglary. By the third time at 16, the court decided not to give him a custodial sentence on the condition that he moved to Manchester to live with Peggy and her husband. At 16 years old, he had not seen his mother for four years and had never met his stepfather. Ian moved in with his mother and stepfather at the end of 1954, thrust into a home with strangers. He became even more withdrawn as he was viewed as different in the community because of his strong Scottish accent. In an attempt to gain more sense of belonging with his new family, he changed his last name from Stuart to Brady. He continued to try and fit in with his family, even though he did not get along with his stepfather, Patrick. Even so, Ian still took the job as a porter at the local market that Patrick found for him, but he still felt as though he did not truly belong and would start to alleviate this loneliness he felt with reading. Through this venture, he discovered something exciting he could relate to within works such as Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, works from Marquis de Sade, and other novels entitled Justine, The Kiss of a Whip, and The Torture Chamber. Eventually, Ian would just pick up where he left off in his criminal career, only a year after living with his mother and stepfather. By this time, he had left his job at the market and was now working in a brewery where he was arrested for aiding and abetting. His employers had found out that he had been stealing lead seals. But this time, the courts were not lenient on him and would sentence him to spend two years in an institution for young offenders. However, he would spend three months in Strangeways Prison in Manchester because there were no available places to put him. Spending time in an actual prison at 17 years old taught him that he needed to toughen up, and he needed to toughen up quickly. After three months in an actual prison, Ian was moved to a young offender's institution in Yorkshire where he would take advantage of the lighter security. He began brewing and drinking his own alcohol and running gambling books. But he would soon find himself in a more strict institution at Hull Prison after getting into a drunken fight with a warden. While at Hull Prison, Ian actively sought out ways to learn more about the criminal way of life. His aspiration in this line of work was to make a great deal of money, become rich. And so, to prepare himself for this, he began taking courses in bookkeeping. His family noticed that he was even more silent and brooding than before after he was released in November 1957. It took him a while to find employment and would eventually work as a laborer for six months. 
He continued to search the right angle for a criminal scheme that would make him rich. But in the meantime, he still needed to have a job. So he decided to put his bookkeeping skills to use, finding employment in 1959 with Millward's merchandising. It was here, over a year later, that a new secretary would walk into his life. Myra and Ian's first meeting was the very definition of an immediate and fatal attraction. While others saw Ian as a gloomy character, Myra found his silent and aloof personality as enigmatic, worldly, and a sign of intelligence. To her, Ian was different from any of the boys she had ever known. She would write in her diary every night of her feverish longing for him, flip-flopping from loving him to hating him. But Ian appeared to remain disinterested. It wasn't until an office Christmas party that Ian would ask Myra out on a date. The first night, he took her out to see the movie Judgment at Nuremberg, which is a film about the Nuremberg trials, dealing with, you know, Nazis and World War II and all of that. He would then have her listen to records of Hitler's marching songs and even encouraged her to read some of his favorite books. Myra happily consented to this undertaking. She had waited for something different and exciting for so long and now she was experiencing it. Before long, Ian became Myra's first lover, and she was just completely obsessed with him as he spoon-fed her all of his twisted philosophical theories. She wanted nothing more in life than to please him, even allowing him to take explicit photos of her and of them having sex. The couple would spend their lunch breaks reading aloud to one another of Nazi atrocities and would become increasingly less sociable with their colleagues. Not only did Myra begin emulating an ideal of Aryan perfection, but she started dressing differently for her boyfriend as well, wearing risque clothing such as high boots, mini skirts, and leather jackets, and also wearing crimson lipstick. With her taking in all of his philosophies and ideals, Ian's ideas would become gradually more paranoid and outrageous. When he told her that there was no God, she stopped going to church. When he told her that rape and murder were not wrong and that murder was the supreme pleasure, she did not question it. It was as if her personality had become one with his transforming her into the female version of himself. The changes in Myra did not go unnoticed by her family, friends, and colleagues. At work, co-workers stated that she had become surly, overbearing, aggressive, and mentioned that she started wearing kinky clothes. Her sister, Maureen, stated that after meeting Ian, Myra would no longer go to dances with her friends, but would instead start leading a secretive life, claiming that she hated babies, children, and people. 
But you couldn't say that Myra was completely oblivious to Ian's troubling personality and ideals. In a letter she wrote to a childhood friend, she had mentioned an incident where she had been drugged by her boyfriend, but also of her obsession with him. A few months later, she would request her friend destroy the letter. What Myra didn't know was that everything Ian was teaching and sharing with her was no more than a test. She was put through a series of tests to see how she performed. And her blind acceptance, caused by her obsession, led her to pass every single one of them. In early 1963, Ian decided it was time for her to take another test. He told her of a plan he had to rob a bank, and that he needed her to be his getaway driver. Instantly, Myra started taking driving lessons and joined the Cheadle Rifle Club, purchasing two guns. The whole bank robbery scheme never came to fruition, because it was never meant to be carried out. The sole purpose of him telling her that he needed her to be his getaway driver was to show him that she was a willing participant, and that she would do whatever he wanted without alarming authorities, or anyone else. This was just one step in cementing their relationship, the beginning of carrying out his dark, degrading fantasies. Ian Brady wanted to commit the perfect murder. 16-year-old Pauline Reed was on her way to a dance at the railway Workers' Social Club on July 12, 1963. She had originally intended on going there with three of her friends, Linda, Barbara, and Pat, but when their parents heard alcohol would be involved, they weren't allowed to go. So, Pauline decided she would go alone. By 8 o'clock, Pauline left her house. She was dressed up in a little pink party dress and everything, but what she didn't know was that she was being watched. Two of her friends, Pat and Dorothy, watched her leave her home and were curious to see if Pauline actually had the nerve to attend the dance by herself. So, they followed her. When they were almost to the club, Dorothy and Pat took a shortcut so they could get there before Pauline. They waited for their friend to arrive, but she never showed. When Pauline didn't come home at midnight, her parents, Joan and Amos, went out searching for her. They wouldn't call the police until the next morning, when their night-long search came up with nothing. The police were even stumped as to where the teenager could have gone. It was as if Pauline just disappeared into thin air. But what they didn't know was that she happened to be the very first victim in one of the worst crimes imaginable. That very night, Ian had Myra drive a van while he followed her on his motorcycle. He told her when he spotted a victim, he would flash his headlight. He saw a young girl and signaled for Myra to stop. But she didn't, because she recognized the girl as an eight-year-old neighbor of her mother. She also felt that the disappearance of a young child would receive too much attention. It wasn't long before Ian flashed his headlight again. 
when he noticed Pauline Reed, who happened to be a classmate of Myra's sister. Myra pulled over and offered her a ride. Once Pauline was in the vehicle, Myra asked the teenager if she would help her search Saddleworth more for an expensive glove she had lost. When Pauline agreed, she drove there. Then Ian arrived on his motorcycle, and Myra told Pauline that he would be helping. Myra claimed she stayed in the van while Ian took Pauline to the moor. After about 30 minutes, he returned alone and proceeded to take Myra to the spot where Pauline lay dying. Her clothes were disheveled, and she had been nearly decapitated by two cuts to the throat. There was a four-inch incision across her voice box. When Myra asked her boyfriend if he had raped the girl, he simply stated, Of course I did. He then left Myra with Pauline as he went to get a shovel he had hidden earlier, then buried the body. While Myra stated she wasn't present during the crime, Ian claimed that she was not only present during the attack, but she also participated in the sexual assault. Four months later, on November 23, 1963, the couple found their second victim. 12-year-old John Kilbride went to the local cinema with his friend John Ryan. The movie finished at 5 o'clock, and the friends went to a market in Ashton-under-Lynn in hopes of earning some pocket money. John Ryan then left his friend standing beside a bin to go catch his bus home. After his friend left, Ian and Myra noticed the 12-year-old and offered him a ride home, saying that his parents might worry that he was out so late. They also promised him a bottle of sherry. Ian was the one who stated something about a lost glove at the moor this time. When they reached the moor, Ian took John with him while Myra stayed in the car. Ian sexually assaulted John and tried to slit his throat with a six-inch serrated blade. He then strangled him with either a shoelace or a string. Ian would go on to bury the body in a shallow grave. His parents, Sheila and Patrick, called the authorities when their son did not return home for dinner. A massive search was conducted to find the 12-year-old. The police and volunteers combed the area for any clue. There was over 700 statements taken and 500 missing posters printed. Eight days after he failed to return home, 2,000 volunteers scoured the waste ground and derelict buildings, but they couldn't find anything. It was reported that at some point after the murder, Ian photographed Myra and her dog Puppet standing on top of John's shallow grave. Almost seven months later, another child would go missing. On June 16, 1964, 12-year-old Keith Bennett was on his way to his grandmother's house. Every Tuesday, he would spend the night with his grandma, and this Tuesday was no different. Her house was just a mile away from his home, so he would always walk there by himself. His mother had watched him over the crossing and onto Stockport Road, then left to go to Bingo in the opposite direction. That was the last time his mom saw him. As the boy was walking to his grandmother's house, 
Myra pulled up beside him with Ian in the back of the van, and she asked for help loading some boxes into her pickup and offered to drive him home when they were done. Myra then drove to Saddleworth Moor, where Ian and Bennett walked off, searching for the imaginary lost glove yet again. Again, the victim was sexually assaulted and strangled, then buried. When Keith didn't arrive at his grandmother's house, she assumed that his mother decided not to send him, or believing that there was some innocent explanation as to why he didn't show up. His disappearance wouldn't be discovered until the next morning when the grandmother arrived at her daughter's house without Keith. Authorities were immediately called. A search was conducted, but again, it was as if a child disappeared into thin air. His stepfather, Jimmy Johnson, became a suspect in the case. The stepfather was taken for questioning on four separate occasions within two years after Keith's disappearance. Investigators even searched under the floorboards of the family home, and on discovering that the houses were connected, they extended their search to the entire street. Six months after this, another child would go missing. On the afternoon of December 26th, 1964, Leslie Ann Downey had gone with her two brothers and friends to the local fair, which was only 10 minutes away from her home. It didn't take long for the young ones to use up all of their pocket money and were left bored with nothing to do. Everyone in the group decided to go home, all except for Leslie. One of her classmates remembered seeing her at about 5.30 standing alone next to one of the rides. Ian and Myra just so happened to be at the fair that day when they noticed Leslie seemingly alone. They approached the young girl, deliberately dropped some of their shopping that they were carrying, and then asked her for help taking the packages to their vehicle, and then they brought her to their house. At their home, Leslie was undressed, gagged, and forcibly posed for photographs before being raped and killed. The brutal attack was recorded on an audio tape, which captured both Ian and Myra's voices while their victim screamed. Myra would later state that she went to run a bath for Leslie, but when she returned, she was dead. However, Ian would say Myra was the one who strangled the child, which happens to be the version which most closely corresponds with the audio tape recording, but we'll get into that later. When Leslie did not return home for dinner, her mother and stepfather began searching for her, which proved fruitless. They then contacted the police. The countryside was searched and thousands of people were questioned, with missing posters displayed everywhere. But no one knew what happened to her. Authorities would initially look at the stepfather as the culprit and would be questioned repeatedly about Leslie's disappearance. The day after her abduction and murder, Ian and Myra would drive Leslie's body to Saddleworth Moor, burying her still naked, placing her clothes at her feet in a shallow 
grave. The killer couple wouldn't strike again until the evening of October 6, 1965. Myra drove Ian to Manchester's Central Railway Station. She remained in the vehicle while he was out searching for their next victim. After waiting for a few moments, Ian appeared again with 17-year-old Edward Evans. He introduced Myra as his sister, claiming that he had picked Edward up for a sexual encounter. They then drove back to their house on Wardle Brook Avenue. At some point during the evening, Ian had Myra go get David Smith, her brother-in-law. Someone who was known to have had several criminal convictions. Ian had been trying to cultivate a friendship with David over the past year. A relationship that worried Myra, and for good reason. After Myra collected David, she left him in the kitchen with the miniature wine bottles she had promised. As he stood alone reading the label, he heard a loud piercing scream. A shriek that he thought it was a woman at first. Suddenly, Myra was calling for him from the living room. When he entered the room, David saw Ian holding what he thought was a life-sized rag doll. But when it fell against the couch, only two feet away from him, he realized it was actually a man. David then witnessed Ian standing over the man with a hatchet in his right hand. Edward lay face down on the floor. When he groaned, Ian raised the axe in the air, striking him on the left side of the head. There was silence. But after a few seconds, the man groaned again, but it was much lower. Ian lifted the hatchet above his head and brought it down again. The only sound that could be heard was a gurgling noise. David then witnessed Ian placing a cover over the young man's head and wrapping a piece of electrical wire around his neck. As Ian repeatedly pulled on the wire, he reportedly stated, You fucking dirty bastard. When the victim grew still and stopped making any noises, Ian looked up at Myra and said, That's it. It's the messiest yet. After this, Myra made her boyfriend and David a cup of tea. You know, something normal that you do. The killer couple joked with each other about the look on Edward's face when Ian struck him with the hatchet. David sat there, listening to the couple. Ian and Myra laughed as they related another instance when Myra was confronted by a cop while burying another victim on Saddleworth Moor. David recalled Ian telling him that he had killed some people before, but David thought it was just some sort of dark, sick fantasy. He didn't believe Ian was being serious. He was terrified and worried for his own safety. Did he really just witness his sister-in-law's boyfriend murder someone? Were they really just making light of the situation? How can he get out of this with his life? He decided the best option was to keep calm 
and go along with them. David helped Myra and Ian tie up the body, carry it to an upstairs bedroom, and clean the mess. He would not receive the opportunity to escape from the two killers until the early hours of the next morning, with the promise he would return to help them dispose of the body. When David made it back home, he was violently ill from the whole ordeal. He told his wife everything, and together, they went to the authorities. After Superintendent Talbot and Detective Sergeant Carr heard this shocking story from David, they immediately went to 16 Wardle Brook Avenue with an additional 24 officers, just in case. At the home, Myra reluctantly handed the authorities a key to the upstairs bedroom. It was the only room in the entire house that was locked. Once inside, they found a young man wrapped in a gray blanket along with the hatchet David described as the murder weapon. Ian was instantly arrested and brought in for interrogation. Here, he would tell officers that there had been an argument between himself, David Smith, and Edward Evans. This argument quickly escalated into a fight, which got out of control. He furthered that David hit and kicked Edward several times before Ian picked up a hatchet that was lying on the floor and struck him. Ian would continue that he and David alone had tied up the body and Myra had nothing to do with any of it. Myra supported his side of the story and described just how horrified and frightened she was by the incident. Authorities would let her go. That is until police found a three-page document in her vehicle describing in detail how she and Ian had planned to carry out the murder. The investigation into the murder of Edward Evans would probably have ended there, if it hadn't been for David telling officers of Ian's claim that he and Myra had buried other bodies on Saddleworth Moor. But it wasn't just this that tipped authorities off about the area. A 12-year-old girl named Pat Hodge was a neighbor of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley's, and they would often go to that moor together for picnics. But she would never become a victim of theirs because of how close she lived to them. Investigators also found numerous photographs of the Moors in their home. They had a lot of things pointing to the Moors, so they knew they needed to search there. When authorities were able to pinpoint areas that the couple would frequent at the Moors, they began digging. On October 10th, 1965, they found Leslie Ann Downey's remains. With this discovery, authorities only had circumstantial evidence to tie Ian Brady and Myra Hindley to her death. They decided that they needed to conduct a more thorough search of their house. On October 15th, investigators would discover a luggage ticket that was inside a prayer book. This ticket would lead officers to a locker at the Manchester Central Station, where they found two suitcases 
filled with pornographic and sadistic paraphernalia. Amongst these items were nine semi-pornographic photos of Leslie Ann Downey, showing her naked, bound, and gagged in numerous explicit poses in Myra's bedroom. Also among these disturbing items was a tape recording. A young girl's voice could be heard screaming, crying, and begging for her life as an adult male and adult female threatened her. Investigators were able to determine that the male and female voices belonged to Ian and Myra, but they were going to need help in identifying whether or not the young girl's voice belonged to Leslie. So authorities called on Anne Downey, Leslie's mother, for help. This poor woman had to listen in horror to her daughter's last moments. But even with this evidence against them, Ian and Myra vehemently denied murdering Leslie. Just like with Edward Evans, they attempted to implicate David Smith as the killer. Both claimed that David brought the girl to their house so Ian could take pictures of her. They furthered that the tape recording authorities listened to was of them attempting to subdue the girl so they could take the pictures. Myra claimed that she only used a harsh tone with the girl because she was afraid that the neighbors would hear her. And so, the couple continued with their innocence, claiming as far as they knew, Leslie left their house unharmed with David Smith. So... It must have been David who murdered her later. Eleven days after discovering Leslie Ann's remains, authorities discovered John Kilbride's body. In the couple's home, they found the name John Kilbride written in Ian's handwriting, in his notebook, and the photograph of Myra standing on his grave at the moors. They also discovered that Myra had rented a vehicle the very day John disappeared. While that isn't necessarily suspicious, it was strange, knowing her whereabouts of that day, that it returned covered in mud. Myra's sister Maureen would even tell investigators that Ian and her sister shopped at Ashton Market every week. So that would definitely place them at the last known place John Kilbride was. Authorities worked tirelessly to find the bodies of the other two missing children, as well as evidence to link the couple to their disappearances. Unfortunately, they were unable to do either. They could only prosecute the couple for the murders of Edward Evans, Leslie Ann Downey, and John Kilbride. Myra Hindley and Ian Brady were brought to trial on April 27, 1966, at Chester Assizes. Both pleaded not guilty to all the charges against them. During the trial, they continued to implicate David Smith as the killer, an act that many viewed as cowardice and deepened the public's hatred of the pair. Their unfavorable reputation plummeted further as at no time during the trial did either of them show remorse for their crimes 
or any sorrow toward the families of their victims. Those who were present at the trial recounted Ian and Myra both appearing cold and heartless. Ian Brady was found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey, John Kilbride, and Edward Evans on May 6, 1966. Myra Hindley was found guilty of the murders of Leslie Ann Downey and Edward Evans, and for harboring Ian in the knowledge that he had killed John Kilbride. With the death penalty being abolished just six months before this, the judge gave them life imprisonment. Ian Brady was sentenced to three concurrent life sentences, while Myra was given two plus a concurrent seven-year term for harboring Ian. Ian Brady was sent to H.M. Prison Durham, and Myra was sent to H.M. Prison Holloway. For the first few years of their imprisonment, Ian and Myra would write each other constantly, and even requested permission to marry. But the longer they were away from each other, the more they started to drift apart. This rift between them was mainly due to how they both reacted to their incarceration. Ian pretty much accepted his sentence quickly and settled into his new life in prison. However, Myra continued to maintain her innocence, claiming that Ian and David were responsible for the murders. She had nothing to do with it. Immediately after her sentencing, she began the appeals process and was denied the right of an appeal when the court declared that there was no miscarriage of justice in her trial. By 1970, Myra broke off all contact with Ian when she realized she would never see him again and ultimately ended their relationship. She would also claim that she was in love with a female warden at the time named Patricia Carnes. Myra would again begin a campaign for her freedom in 1978. She composed a 20,000 word document claiming she was just an innocent victim of Ian Brady's manipulative personality and maintained that Ian was the guilty party with David Smith as his accomplice. But the courts were not too keen on listening to her statements and determined that it would be another three years before Myra's application for parole could even be heard. Her application was finally heard in 1985, but was rejected, and would not be heard again for at least another five years. This action appeared to finally get the point across to her that no one believed she had no involvement in the crimes. No one believed that she was innocent. Ian made his first public statement in 1978, where he informed the public that he did not intend to apply for parole, as he accepted the weight of the crimes both Myra and I were convicted of justifies permanent imprisonment, regardless of expressed personal remorse and verifiable change. After this, he practically disappeared from public eye. As his mental state gradually began to deteriorate, Ian began experiencing visual and auditory hallucinations and paranoia. 
which doctors would then diagnose him with paranoid schizophrenia. He spent 19 years in mainstream prisons before being diagnosed as a psychopath in November 1985 and sent to the high-security Park Lane Hospital, which is now known as Ashworth Hospital. Keith Bennett's mother wrote to Myra at the end of 1986, pleading with her to reveal what happened to her son and for her to help in recovering his remains. Soon, Myra was making front-page news with the release of her full confession. She admitted to the knowledge of and involvement in all five murders, including Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett. But she continued to insist that she was not the one who murdered any of them. Shortly after Myra's confession, Ian confessed when investigators proved to him that Myra gave them information that only the culprits could have possibly known. But Ian would decline to offer any public statements of remorse. While their confessions confirmed that Pauline Reed and Keith Bennett were buried on the moors, both perpetrators were unable to pinpoint the exact locations. Pauline's body was finally located on July 1st, 1987, identified by her pink party dress that she was last seen wearing. When Myra confessed, her solicitor believed that her chances at receiving parole were greatly increased by her display of remorse. He also expressed that he expected her to be able to succeed in gaining her release in another 10 years. However, she would ultimately never be released. In 1999, Myra was diagnosed with angina and hospitalized after suffering a brain aneurysm. She would die from bronchial pneumonia at West Suffolk Hospital on November 15, 2002. Media outlets stood and watched outside during the short service at Cambridge Crematorium. But none of Myra's relatives were in attendance. Many local undertakers refused to handle her cremation. Her ex-partner, Patricia Carnes, would eventually take her ashes and scatter them less than 20 miles from Saddleworth Moor. Which kind of sounds disrespectful in a way, but alright. In 2008, Myra's solicitor would recall Myra telling him, I ought to have been hanged. I deserved it. My crime was worse than Brady's because I enticed the children, and they would never have entered the car without my role. I have always regarded myself as worse than Brady. Ian Brady claimed that his right wrist was broken in 1999 during an hour-long unprovoked attack by staff at Ashworth Hospital. He then went on a hunger strike, wanting to be removed from the hospital. While English law allows patients to refuse treatment, those who are being treated for mental disorders do not have that right if their treatment is for their mental disorder. So, he was then force-fed, but would ultimately be transferred to another hospital for tests after he became ill. When he recovered, 
he would be sent back to Ashworth Hospital, where he would ask for a judicial review of the legality of the decisions to force-feed him, but he was refused permission. Ian would go on to state, Myra gets the potentially fatal brain condition, whilst I have to fight simply to die. I have had enough. I want nothing. My objective is to die and release myself from this once and for all. So you see, my death strike is rational and pragmatic. I'm only sorry I didn't do it decades ago. And I'm eager to leave this cesspit in a coffin. Forensic psychologist Chris Cowley met with Ian Brady a few times. He claimed that Ian regretted Myra Hindley's imprisonment and the consequences of their actions, but not necessarily the crimes themselves. Ian would apply to be returned to prison again in 2012, reiterating his desire to starve himself to death, and claimed he suffered from a personality disorder, not paranoid schizophrenia. However, this application was rejected, with the judge stating that he continues to suffer from a mental disorder, which is of a nature and degree which makes it appropriate for him to continue to receive medical treatment. Five years later, on May 15, 2017, Ian Brady died of restrictive pulmonary disease at Ashworth Hospital. An inquest into his disease showed he died of natural causes and that his numerous hunger strikes had nothing to do with his death. He was cremated without a ceremony with his ashes disposed of at sea during the night. A journalist conducted an interview with Ian Brady with shocking revelations into the relationship between him and Myra. He admitted to being in love with Myra, which is kind of shocking in a way to be honest. <laughs> when asked about his brainwashing of her, he stated that he did not have a master and slave relationship, but a teacher and student. He could speak frank with Myra. He could place all of his innermost thoughts on the table where she could either accept or reject them. But she usually almost always accepted them. He would further state that she was just as ruthless as himself. This is just a mere glimpse into the mind of Ian Brady and his relationship with Myra Hindley. A link to the article will be in today's show notes and it is well worth the read. Key witness to the murder of Edward Evans, David Smith passed away at 65 years old. Ever since the chilling incident, David lived the rest of his life in persecution for being friends with the Moore's murderers and was labeled a child killer. But his wife posed the question, how many more children would have been tortured and murdered if it weren't for David? As Myra constantly proclaimed her innocence and pointed her finger at David as an accomplice, the public believed her claims. Because of this, he couldn't find work. His children were spat at, bricks, would be thrown through his windows, and he was repeatedly beaten up in local pubs. He and Maureen would eventually divorce after he was sent to prison for fighting. When she divorced him, she would also abandon their sons. 
He would remarry a woman named Mary and have a daughter with her. Until his last breath, he continued to help officers in the search for Keith Bennett's remains on the moors. While he continued to help authorities, people were still cruel, believing he had something to do with the murders. Do you think David Smith had something to do with the killings? Or do you think he was wrongfully accused by the masses? What do you think of today's episode? Do you think Myra Hindley's life would have been different if she never crossed paths with Ian Brady? Or do you think she would have eventually found herself in a life of crime? Let me know your thoughts in the comments. Thank you for listening and your support. Don't forget to like, comment, and follow for new episodes from me. Stay safe and I will see you for the next episode. Bye!